Welcome back to the program. Yesterday, the New York Times ran a story about how libraries in New York are helping to provide Wi-Fi in parts of the city. Obviously, the link between libraries and information is longstanding. But imagine that in the 1930s, long, long before the World Wide Web was even a kernel in the mind of Tim Berners-Lee or others, the idea of interconnected information, of hyperlinks, of understanding the connection between information and ideas and trying to pull them all together in a patchwork of analog technology. That's what Paul Otley envisioned way ahead of his time. His story, long forgotten and ignored, has now come back to life in the work of my guest, Alex Wright. Alex Wright is a contributing editor to the New York Times, a professor of design history at the School of Visual Arts. He is the author of the previous book, Glut, and it is my pleasure to welcome Alex Wright here to talk about cataloging the world, Paul Otley and the birth of the information age, Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Great to to be here. Great to have you here. Given what he thought about, given what he accomplished, why do we know so little about Paul Otley? Well, you know, it's interesting. You're right. He's he's not a terribly well-known guy, and I think there are several reasons for that. One is... The most obvious reason is uh, a lot of his, most of his work has not been translated into English. He wrote in, fr- in French, and, um, you know, work has largely not been accessible to an English-speaking audience. But I think there's a little more to it than that. You know, he was working in Belgium in the first half of the 20th century, and we all know what happened in Belgium in 1940. Uh, unfortunately, the, the Nazis came in, and they destroyed a lot of his work. Uh, he built a a fairly large installation that included both this uh, this enormous library catalog he had built, which he called the Universal Bibliography, as well as a vast museum that he was envisioning as a kind of global museum, all of which he saw as components of this uh, this vision that he had for a networked information system. Uh, so unfortunately, the Nazis came in and they destroyed a lot of that. They actually were very interested in Otley because he had a lot of foreign contacts and he was a kind of a known pacifist and they interrogated him and ended up destroying a lot of his work. He then died during, uh, right at the end of the war in 1944 and was subsequently you know, largely forgotten. The, uh, uh, you know, Belgium at that time you know, had other things on its mind. They were focused on rebuilding the country, and his work kind of faded from view. And in the years that followed, you know, we saw the, the early development of the high-tech industry in the United States with, you know, the, during the Cold War, you know, the great investments of by the Defense Department that ultimately led to the creation of the Internet. And really, the, the kind of mythology of the Internet has been this very Anglo-American story because a lot of the, um, you know, the subsequent development was, was conducted by English and American computer scientists during the Cold War. It eventually led to things like the ARPANET and um, eventually experiments with hypertext by people like uh, Doug Engelbart and J.C.R. Licklider, uh, later Ted Nelson and... Um, and people like Tim Berners-Lee. So it's been a very kind of Anglo-American story, and I think this whole earlier chapter in that story has largely been overlooked. One of the other fascinating aspects of what Otley contributed has as much to do with the way people think, the way people process information, this idea of taking information and moving it from silos, which is how we thought of it, to really understanding, beginning to understand the connections between information. Yeah, you're right, and that's really, I think, where Otley's uh, ideas were just far ahead of his time. He he really, you know, he came from the library world. He had been a like a school librarian, and then he was briefly a lawyer, but was always kind of fascinated by books and 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 
felt a strong you know pull to, to the world of books and working with information. At, at the same time, he also came to the realization that books were actually very limited as a technology. You know, he saw that at that time in the 19th century, you were really starting to see the first stirrings of this kind of in information explosion where you had um, industrialized printing presses and the beginnings of, you know, daily newspapers and more of a popular literature. At the same time, a lot of companies and governments and organizations were producing more and more documentation because they, the tools for doing that were becoming more accessible, things like typewriters and, um, you know, later... Um, you know, mimeograph machines and other other kinds of technologies of, of information production were, were starting to uh, to take shape, and he saw that you know the, the the form, the traditional form of the book was really kind of an obstacle. You know, because really he felt like librarians had been sort of fixated on this question of how do you get people to a book on a shelf, but they weren't really kind of interested in what happened after that. Like, how did people actually use that information? How did they work with it? How did they then take the information from one book and relate it to the information in another book and then create some new level of meaning out of that. And so what he developed was this really sophisticated scheme. It was called the, it was called the universal decimal classification. And it was really a, a classification scheme that was an, intended to allow you to create very specific kind of links um, that would, you know, basically identify the topics in a book. And it's the idea that if you could sort of take the, the contents of a book and sort of unpack it, and index it, and then make that index part of a shared repository of information, you could really do some interesting things. He imagined, he eventually described this world where you had kind of a small army of indexers and catalogers taking all the books and published information in the world and really indexing it in quite a bit of detail, and then creating kind of relationships between relate, you know, information from different sources, and then sort of creating new works out of that that would be kind of like a and you could think of it as like remixing and the information. Um, so you had this very kind of, you know, internet-like idea of really kind of, um, you know, making information searchable across a lot of different uh, media and then being able to, uh, you know, to stitch it back together in new ways. So it was really, even though he was working with, you know, may seem like very limited, the limited technologies of the time, you know, paper and things like index cards and microfilm, he had a pretty... Uh, far-sighted vision of what, what that could all eventually lead to. He also brought in the idea of symbolism and kind of a graphics interface, or at least the idea of, of a kind of graphics interface for all mm -hmm. of this. That's right. Yeah, he, you know, as he continued to develop his ideas, he became very interested in the question of how do you um, create visual expressions of this information. And he was got very interested in the work that was going on in the museum world at that time, and he felt like you know, there was a lot of uh, interesting experimentation going on where museums were starting to get beyond the idea of, of just sort of collecting artifacts, but of trying to take on a more educational mission. So he himself got involved in creating a museum, which he called the, the Palais Mondial, or the, the World Palace. And if you looked at the, what he built there, it was a lot of really interesting, I think what we would almost today call like information graphics, where he would take a particular topic like, you know, mathematics or the history of Spain or, you know, uh, the Paleolithic era. And he would create, he worked with these um, artists to create these kind of uh, like visual guides to the topic. And this was all then tied in with his, his classification system so that you could look at this kind of, you know, visual um, introduction to a topic and then you could kind of drill down 
deeper into it, if you found something that was interesting to you, you could then use that as a launching point to then go deeper into the into the collection. So again, even though it was all kind of done with paper and um, you know sort of analog technologies, it was really a, a very very much a kind of hyperlinked sort of idea about how information could flow. And and even he talked about this idea of trying to create a paperless culture, a paperless office. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, he's you know in his as. You know, as his work progressed, and you know, he, this was all going on over a period of like forty years, from the beginning of his you know, when he first started work on this universal bibliography to when he wrote really his his master work, a, a book called The Treatise on Documentation, um, in the nineteen thirties. You know, he started to see some interesting technological trends taking shape. He saw, you know, the, the first um, stirrings of like radio and television. And at the time, you know, there were already telegraph networks everywhere and telephones, and he was seeing, um, you know, the rise of moving pictures and audio recordings, and he thought that eventually all this stuff might, eventually he imagined that this all might um, find a place on a network that was accessible through a series of, of what he called electric telescopes that would look, let you sort of peer over a far distance to, you know, a collection of information stored somewhere else, and you'd be able to pull up that information on a screen um, in the comfort of your own home and be able to access sort of any information in the world by, uh, by tapping into this network. One of the other ideas that, that grew out of this, uh, it's, it's hard to understand which came first, the, this idea or, or some of the things we've been talking about, but tying it all to some kind of world government, what was that about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all he did, even though I think the reason he's sort of interesting, most interesting to us today is because he had these these ideas about networks and information. He really worked, you know, did a lot of other things too. And I think one of the um, really signal accomplishments of his life was he was he was involved in the formation of the League of Nations. He was a, a real uh, politically progressive guy. He was a, a committed pacifist. He lost one of his sons in World War One, and devoted a good chunk of the last part of his life to promoting the cause of, of world peace. And he saw that mission as actually very closely tied up with this, uh, this notion of making the world's information more accessible. He actually felt like a lot of the conflict, you know, political conflict and military conflict that happened in the world was due to um, kind of an uneven distribution of information in a way. He felt like if everyone had access to the same information and understood the world in the same way, then you might you know, reduce a lot of that, that conflict. And he saw the... Uh, the, the network is sort of the intellectual nerve center of this, uh, this sort of utopian world government where he thought that eventually you would have this kind of like post-national uh, system where you would have a kind of like a, a, a federation of, uh, of nation states that agreed to um, you know, cooperate at a, at a high level to ensure world peace. So in a way, very much like what the, what the League of Nations or later the United Nations was intended to be, but with a little more, you know, um, uh, a little more uh, authority, and uh, so he, you know, during World War One, he was a real active sort of polemicist. He wrote all these essays and was a, kind of a one one of the really vocal proponents of uh, of the League of Nations. Uh, he even then collaborated with um, uh, folks like uh, the architect Le Corbusier and uh, a less well known guy named Hendrik Anderson, who was a, a sculptor to propose this idea for a world, a new world city that would serve as the headquarters of this, of this world government. And originally, if initially he had hoped that it would be located in Belgium. And then later when the league of nations was headquartered in 
chose uh, Switzerland as its headquarters. They put together this elaborate plan to create this new world city in uh, in Switzerland that would have that would serve as kind of also serve as the hub of this of this global network. Sort of an early version of globalization as well. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, something like that. How did he see this in terms of the role of museums and universities? Well, he saw that. You know, what's a little different about his vision from the internet as it is today? I mean, there's several kind of big differences, even though there's some sort of surface level similarities. But he saw this as largely an institutional kind of project. I mean, he thought that really the possibility of, of the network was to create was to create a common platform for information sharing between the world's uh, sort of institutional producers of knowledge. So he saw that you know governments and universities and museums and libraries. You know, we're sitting on top of all this information, and that that he wanted to create a way for that information to flow between them. So, you know, he was also very involved in creating a, a network of international associations, like you know, scholarly associations of you know, scientists and um, philosophers, and you know, who are anyway. You know, there, there was a big movement towards this kind of uh, towards establishing these kind of international associations in the first half of the the 20th century, and he created a a bureau called the um, the uh, Union of International Associations that sort of tried to coordinate all their activities, and so he saw that you know he thought universities played would play a key role in that, but he also saw um, museums as being pretty integrally involved, particularly in sort of opening up this world of information to a broader public. He um, collaborated with a couple of interesting folks, a guy named Patrick Geddes, who was a, a Scottish, um, actually a, a biologist and sociologist who was very interested in sort of the um, teaching mission of museums, and a guy named Otto Neurath, who was an Austrian guy who um, was uh, also a very progressive, uh, sort of a uh, you know, lefty kind of um, uh, a sociologist and uh, philosopher. And he uh, tried to, uh, but working with them, they created these systems for this, this idea of a... Uh, kind of a syndicated museum. The idea would be that you could have a, a museum that was with exhibits that could easily be replicated and trans, sort of transmitted to other museums. So you could have like an exhibit on topic A and it would consist largely of these kind of educational materials like diagrams and posters, um, stuff that could be replicated and that you could then take that and transmit it to another museum somewhere else and that each of those museums would then also have its own kind of area of expertise. You know, the museum in Vienna would be sort of the, the hub for collecting, you know, information about Austrian history, and it could then sort of share that information with other museums, and there would be this kind of network of uh, information, you know, kind of localized exhibits then made available to a broader public. So even though it was all to be done, you know, sort of with paper and, you know, big, uh, you know, poster exhibits, uh, it was still very much an idea of being able to, uh, to sort of network this information and, and share it more widely. Who did he see paying for all of this? Well, that's an interest, really interesting um, aspect of his network. He really saw very little role for the private sector. I mean, really, if you read the, the way he talked about the network, it was largely a public sector initiative. So his own work, he, he managed to secure quite a bit of funding from the Belgian government. His partner in the project was uh, a guy named Henri Lafontaine, who was a, a Belgian senator who also won the Nobel Peace Prize um, at one point. So he had quite, a, quite good connections with the Belgian government for, for a while. Um, and they were able to to fund some of his work um, with the, his ideas about the larger kind of global government. He, he again he saw this as very much uh, part of a you know a world government project, which would be 
modeled more or less on the League of Nations. So he saw that really as you know basically the government or, or the world's governments funding this this kind of enterprise sort of for the for the greater good. How might he view the way all of this has evolved today? Yeah, it's a that's an interesting question. You know, it's it's of course hard to really know what he would have thought. I mean, the world's a very very different place now. I I imagine on the one hand he would be very pleased to see that his you know his idea that you know a global network would someday make information available to a, a large number of people. I think he'd be very pleased to see that that idea vindicated because it, it has more or less turned out that way. At the same time, I think he would probably have some concerns about a couple of things. One, I think that the, the, the internet is a very chaotic place, and he was, you know, as a librarian, was was really devoted to order and trying to make sense of things. And you know, his vision was very much that you know everything on the network would be carefully managed and curated and described and archived and preserved. Um, I think he would probably be a little, uh, you know, concerned about the just sort of free-for-all nature of the web where things, you know, web pages come and go and, you know, you can never really quite get get your bearings. I mean, it's just everything's kind of a constant, in a constantly fluid state. Um, I think he might also have liked to see more of a, a, a role for the public sector. It seems like, you know, we're really living in an era where increasingly it's a small number of for-profit corporations that really are channeling the distribution of so much of the information in the world and they're you know, their interests are not you know, necessarily aligned with the public good as much as there's all this rhetoric about sort of changing the world. You know, at the end of the day, these are private corporations whose primary reason for existing is to, is to generate profits. And there's some inherent conflict with generating profits and, and acting on behalf of, um, you know, of the public interest. So I think he probably would have had some concerns about that. I mean, if you look at the way he described the network, there was really almost no... Uh, private enterprise going on with the exception of he, he saw sort of a small role for bookstores. Um, it's kind of ironic. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at, at the history of all of this, to what extent were some of those, some of those Anglo-American inventors that you talked about before, to what extent were they aware of or in some ways influenced by the work of Otley? You know, that's, that's the big question. And it's a, it's a tough one to answer. I've looked pretty long and hard to, to, to try to find the paper trail that connects Otley's work to the subsequent development of the Internet, and it doesn't really seem to be there. Um, but I, what, what does seem clear is that Otley's uh, work was really very much in the air, you know, especially in the 1930s. He was part of a larger community. He wasn't the you know, I should say he was not the only person thinking along these lines. There were a few other people, especially in Europe, who were starting to sort of ponder this idea of networks and the problem of information overload. One of them, um, particularly important and is very well aligned with Otley's thinking, was H.G. Uh, Wells, who's well known as a, um, better known today as a, you know, a science fiction writer, but he was also a real activist and um, uh, sort of polemicist. And he wrote a book called The World Brain, which was published in the late 30s, where he talked about, in very similar terms, about this idea of uh, a, a global network. And his, that was a very popular book that was certainly in the air. He and Outlay were certainly aware of each other's works, uh, work. You know, they were, appeared at the same conference together at one point, and they, there was certainly some back. Outlay referred to Wells' work quite a bit, and um, there was clearly some influence going on there. So I think what you can say is that Outlay's ideas were very much in the air uh, in the 1930s, and he was very involved in this sort of community of people who were working on things like microfilm and documentation. And, um, you know, it was out of that community that, um, 
you know, a number of important developments later sort of found their way into the United States. Like there's a guy named uh, Watson Davis who was doing some early work on microfilm who later, um, you know, had, uh, you know, some interaction with uh, Benivar Bush, the guy who wrote the, a, fam- a famous essay in 1945 uh, called As We May Think for the Atlantic Monthly. It was later published in Life magazine where he proposed this idea of a memex, which was a uh, kind of a prototype um, hypertext device. And, you know, historians, you know, technology historians often trace the kind of subsequent evolution of the Internet and even some aspects of the personal computer to Bush's essay. Um, you know, there's no direct kind of paper trail that connects Bush to Altlay, but at the same time, Bush is also was also kind of notorious for not really uh, uh, including a lot of footnotes in his work. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a, you know, fascinating question, but it's, you know, unfortunately, maybe one of these kind of... Um, unsolved mysteries, I guess, you know, we're still, it's, it's, it's not entirely clear, but it does seem like Utley was certainly better known in the 1930s than, than he is today. You know. Did Utley see his work in the scientific realm or more in the intellectual realm? Hmm. An interesting question. Um, I think it's some of both. I mean, he had this very kind of inclusive, idealistic vision that, you know, all the world's information should be uh, kind of shared in a common framework. He was also somewhat influenced by Geddes, uh, the, the Scottish guy I mentioned, who was very much um, opposed to the specialization, the over-specialization of disciplines. He felt like there was a risk as more and more information was produced. And I think I'll share this view, that there was a risk of sort of people, you know, uh, uh, you know, smart people becoming too narrowly focused in particular kind of disciplinary buckets. And uh, he felt like one of the benefits of the network is that it would in- encourage more kind of cross-pollination of ideas. And um, you know, something that Geddes was a, was a big proponent of. So I think he saw, you know, he certainly wouldn't have described himself as a a scientist. I think he would have used the term documentalist, which is sort of a rough translation of a you know a French term. Um, but uh, you know, he certainly I think saw himself as uh, you know working for the betterment of you know for for the cause of intellectual progress and scholarly inquiry. Although I don't think he would have described himself as a scientist. Alex Wright. The book is Cataloging the World, Paul Otley and the Birth of the Information Age, just out from Oxford University Press. Alex, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right.